if you're an academic and you can get one thousandth of that, uh, that's a major achievement. So I think in music, it's still mostly that part. Um, there's a lot of work that's being done on algorithms, on new approaches to using AI for music generation. But most of it is really small scale and like quality over quantity, I guess. And the big breakthroughs are being done by big tech because they have access to the data and to the compute. Um, yeah. Welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time because my background is in music before I switched to data science. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit jealous. You have a double degree in music ecology and data science. So I love the fact that you combine these together at first. And you have been doing a ton of work in the generative AI space and music space and post some really, really great articles on Medium and LinkedIn. And so I just appreciate everything that you're doing to contribute to this space because it's an exciting time. And I feel like I'm hoping that in 2024, 25, you know, the music AI space will have its chat GPT moment as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I hope we can get into that and talk to it a little bit more. But first of all, just thanks sure. for coming on the show and, and, you know, contributing to the community in such a way that you do today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Very happy to be here. So I'd love to just start off with what is the current state of AI-generated music? Particularly, we've seen a lot of advancements in the past few years, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more here in 2024. But as someone who's been in this space for, the, for a while, how would you describe the current state? Well, I guess the, the most, most surprising thing that happened last year is that we did get our first music generative models that could generate real audio, not symbolic music like sheet music or MIDI uh, for, the, for the musicians, I guess. Uh, but it's really generating audio that sounds a little bit like music. That was already a breakthrough. And that was like the start of 2023. And I think we're getting, I guess, closer to the point where the music becomes of a similar quality to human-made music, but it's still a long way. So I, I, I really do think if you compare this to text, uh, the music generative AI that we currently have is somewhere between GPT-1 and GPT-2 probably. So it's you can recognize it as text, but it's clearly not made by humans. And there's a long way until ChatGPT. But I do think we'll reach that point if we, if we continue this trend. And so how are these models currently built? Is is this a similar process of human-based reinforcement learning? Can you talk us through a little bit about what's the base architecture of these models? Yeah, sure. So most of these text-to-audio models, again, there's also the symbolic variants, uh, but I'm mostly focused on the audio ones. These text-to-audio models are trained in a very, very, very similar way to image generation models, for example, where you really collect a gigantic data set of audios with labels, with text descriptions, which is one of the hardest parts of this entire process, collecting a huge data set of music with descriptions. Um, it's not like with images where you find them on the web everywhere. Every image has a description, not every track has a description. So you collect this gigantic data set 
And essentially, they're also using autoregressive transformers in the same way that you're doing it for text. Just like with images, there's also the diffusion models that are being used uh, where you generate image representations of the music, for example, and then turn it to a waveform again. So it's actually very, very comparable to text and, and uh, image. And I think they're kind of, because it's a rather small field, uh, it's usually easier and more effective to borrow architectures from uh, from more rapidly advancing fields rather than build music-specific ones, um, just because there's not so much resources. So one of the things you mentioned was this labeled data set and how it's difficult to find. But I even wonder if we find a labeled data set or we create our own, how we may label it may be very different. And the reason why mm -hmm. I ask that question is, I loved music theory where you would go through and you would find the chord progressions, the patterns, right? And you dissect a piece of music, which was beautiful. And I loved it because it was pretty standard of this is the interpretation of, yes, this is a C major seven chord, right? And we could agree on that. However, if we sat and I listened to a piece of music and you listened to the same piece of music, we may both describe that in adjectives very differently, right? Let alone the language we use, the culture we come from may have different meanings to that music. So do you think that music will be a little bit different in the fact of we may have discrepancies in how we label things and how do we get clarity of those labels? Yeah, totally. I think it's most comparable probably to images because there you also have these text to image models and how are they trained? Well, you have images and they have descriptions and typically these image descriptions are rather objective, right? So this is a cat sitting on a sofa or something like it's mostly objective. Of course, there's also moods and impressions that maybe you find in the descriptions, but with music, it's totally different. So even, even if you give a piece of music, a genre label, just rock or metal or a pop, that already has so many cultural implications and like so many facets and it's so subjective and uh, usually it's not it's not recognized enough i think how subjective something like genre even is and we're not even getting to moods and uh, situations that you would connect with the music uh, nevertheless we need these models that can connect language to uh, to music or the other way around so I guess this is kind of a one of the key challenges in the field. And I do think we we actually see this effect also in these music generation models because, yes, they're lacking scale, but even at the scale where these models are currently produced, they're very, um, I guess, insufficient at following the text descriptions. So if you tell the model that you need a piece of music in that style or with that uh, instrumentation or um, something like that with that mood, I feel like there's still it's very tough for these models to follow the instructions appropriately. And I assume while that has to do something with the size of the models and the training data, it also has something to do with, uh, you know, how do you interpret a uh, text to music uh, request from a user? It's such a, it's a much harder challenge than going from text to text, for example, or even from text to images sometimes. Yes, definitely. It's, you know, music is its own language, as many people say, right? It's, it's universal language. And so we almost have, a, I would say, maybe a translation problem, right? Because we're translating from one language, which is this, a spoken or whatever your local languages of, of English, and then to another language, which is yeah. music, right? And so I, is anybody working on that portion, particularly of the problem? Or are people at this point in the landscape, we're really just looking, can we create any prompt and get close to what we're saying? Have we dissected the problems of music generation from prompting 
in any regard today. Right. Uh, yeah. So in academia, of course, people are working on this. Uh, it's actually quite the music information retrieval field. It's quite the niche field, but there's there's still lots of people working on this because it's fascinating and people from all disciplines. And there is research on this. So, for example, how can you make uh, the generation controllable by introducing um, you know, fixed parameters into the generation process so that you can include the tempo, for example, or the key of the music as an objective fact in the prompt. So you have kind of the subjective parts and the objective parts separated, and you have some uh, degree of controllability for the music. Uh, that, of course, doesn't solve the subjectivity issue. And I think, you know, while that is a topic that people do care about in academia usually, and it's relevant, uh, the big progress is currently being made by large tech organizations. And what they're essentially doing still up to this point is just collecting as much music as they can somehow find by any means necessary and just, you know, throwing them into autoregressive transformers. Um, it's a bit simplified, but it, it's actually still how this is going. It's a little bit like with text two years ago or something. So where everybody's doing the same thing, scaling up, collecting more data and seeing what comes out. We haven't reached that uh, level of maturity yet, as we have with ChatGPT, for example. Why do you think we're seeing so much progress from research being done by corporations versus research being done in academia? I mean, we saw the same thing with LLMs yeah. and particularly just the AI space in general. Why do you think that is? I mean, the whole point of research in academia is to lead that way. What's going on that happened in your best guess or opinion that is now causing organizations and companies to lead that charge. Right. I think a lot of it is access to data. I mean, that's the same thing with text, right? So uh, something, someone like Google, for example, has gigantic amounts of data and they have, you know, just, I think music LM, their, their primary text to music model uh, from last year was trained on, um, don't quote many, but I think roughly 700,000 hours of music. That's something like 10 million pieces of music. Uh, that's a crazy amount of music to have, especially if it's labeled. That's insane. Uh, and it's completely, if, if you're an academic and you can get one thousandth of that, uh, that's a major achievement. So I think in music, it's still mostly that part. Um, there's a lot of work that's being done on algorithms, on new approaches to using AI for music generation. But most of it is really small scale and like quality over quantity, I guess. And the big breakthroughs are being done by big tech because they have access to the data and to the compute. Um, yeah. Yes, it, that is kind of the way of things today. If you have the computing power and the data, it's really just incredible of what you can do. And I'm, I'm curious if we're going to see this exponential curve of the progress we make scaling models up, right, with more data and more compute, mm -hmm. if it's going to ever level out a little bit, right? And then that's when we want to look into new techniques and methods and ways of doing things. But so far right now, we're on an exponential trend where we're still seeing progress yeah. from it, which is quite exciting. I want to shift gears a little bit into your story and how you got into the space. You know, having a two degrees, one a bachelor's of science in data science and one a BA in musicology. Mm -hmm. One, congratulations on getting two degrees. Uh, and then two, <laughs> um, well. what, what made you decide to combine these two fields together? How did your interests spur in both music and data science? 
Yeah, I mean, as as one might guess, uh, this double degree wasn't the plan initially. Uh, so it's it's unusual, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of it's grown organically on me, I guess, because I signed up for musicology because I obviously I love music. I was and am a music theory nerd, and I really wanted to learn more about music theory. I wanted to learn about composition, and I really thought I was going to do something like composition or maybe music education afterwards. I wasn't really sure about it, but that was my interest. And then in university, I actually discovered that the whole academic research with uh, statistics and empirical research was really fascinating to me, which I never expected because I'd never been particularly interested in numbers before. Uh, I didn't hate them, but I also didn't love them. Uh, but that actually changed quite a bit. So I, I really um, was interested in academic research, research, statistics, and then my interest shifted more to machine learning because obviously that was the thing happening uh, like four years ago or five years ago. And uh, it was obvious for me that if I want to do something valuable with machine learning, uh, it's most likely I can do that in the music field because uh, when you read research about music AI, a lot of the time... Um, people are either coming from the computer science fields or domain, or they're coming from the music domain. And the computer scientists, they're lacking oftentimes the musical knowledge and also kind of the, the um, humanities academic training, whereas not everything is objective. Some things are, there's, there's some things about that, that that are important for music. And on the other side, the musicians that have the music knowledge uh, to do this research, they often are completely tech phobic uh, and they don't want to learn anything about programming. So I felt like, Hey, now that I have these two interests, might as well, you know, do something in that field. That was kind of where that came from. Yeah, I love the word tech phobic. I think a lot of people yeah. who also work in business can relate to that, right? Is you know, you may be working with a marketer and they're tech phobic, but if you have previous experience in marketing and data science, you're that perfect mm -hmm. bridge who can make that gap um, reasonable. I want to talk a little bit about one of your, you have two theses that you wrote. One is individuals' approaches to music streaming, the interactions of personality, uses of music, and technology acceptance. You have to love academic thesis. They are a mouthful, right? Yeah. <laughs> they do yeah, not fit very well. They do not fit very well in our world of TikToks and Reels, right? A, a little bit too long. But tell me a little bit more, dissect this. What, what was this thesis about? Yeah, sure. So that was really, I was interested at that time in the adoption of music streaming uh, because I, it was, of course, it was a widespread technology, but not everybody was actually using music streaming, especially if you go to the, the older generations, but even in the younger generations. Uh, and I, I was really thinking that, you know, when people were doing research on the adoption of music streaming services, oftentimes a lot of this was just very business oriented and just like, why are people adopting the technology? Well, because they're, they perceive it as useful. And there's, there's this kind of technology acceptance uh, framework that I also used in my, in my study, because it's obviously relevant if you think the technology is useful, for example, and, and so on. But I also tried incorporating um, music preferences into it, because I do feel like um, music streaming caters also as a technology to a specific kind of listener. Um, because if you're, there's certain types of listeners. If you only, if you consume music when you sit down in your chair 
and you turn on your um, your CD or your vinyl recording and you put on some classical music, you sit back, do you do nothing else, then you don't really need music streaming services. On the other hand, if you're someone who um, tends to use music functionally for emotion modulation, for example, where you're on the bus and it's getting busy and you're getting, maybe you're getting anxiety or you just feel uncomfortable and you put on the music and it helps you calm down, for example, or you use music to modulate your effect in, in everyday life overall. And I felt like this would be something uh, that would cater to music streaming service listening. So that's actually what I kind of researched. Also, if personality uh, makes a difference. And uh, we really found out that personality itself does not actually kind of um, lead to a higher or lower adoption of music streaming services, but that actually this interaction of personality and um, music listening behavior uh, makes a difference. And the music listening behavior itself kind of directly affects the adoption. Um, so yeah, that was what that was about. That was fun. Very nice. And then your second thesis was on audio-based classification of music preferences, dimensions using um, CNN's convolutional neural networks. How did this idea come about and what were some of the key findings from it? Yeah, so that was that was that one is much more techy. So it sounds much more boring even than the other one, because it's just, <laughs> well, I use CNNs for music tagging. And Honestly, that's kind of what I did. So it's it's like so I've I've worked with the technology before using CNNs for uh, audio classification, uh, which is really cool because um, what many people don't know about music is that many music classifiers, most of them, are actually not based on uh, the raw music, the waveform, you know, kind of the the digitalized physical wave. Uh, but really, they're based on these image representations of music, which are called spectrograms. Uh, musicians will know them. No one else will know what that is. But it's like an image of the music. And uh, people did that because then they could just use CNNs, um, which other people had already discovered. So again, it's like very, very often in music. So I felt like I, I would like to dig deeper into this. And I tried to apply this also to a musicology concept. So in, um, I, I felt like in data science, when you read studies about genre classification, everybody was always just using whatever they could find. So there's these academic benchmark data sets that you find on the internet, and they have these 10 genres, you know, rock, blues, country, this and that. And it's just taken as a given. There's no, nobody ever thought about, are these the 10 genres we need? Uh, are there more? Are there less? Uh, do we need to weigh them potentially? So I actually did a music classification based on a musicological model about meta-genres, essentially. So how genres cluster together to four or five central, I guess, meta-genres. And I used a classifier to classify music into these four uh, or five, depending on which you use, uh, meta-genres, which essentially was kind of the idea that if you have that, uh, any music that is uh, thrown into my system, uh, my, my model can handle it because there's nothing missing. There's, there's, it's all of the music, essentially, kind of. That was the idea, at least. I love it. And getting back to kind of our previous point of how do we describe music, right? And what are those labels we assign to it? And are there more labels or less labels? And how we may describe that may be a bit different. When we talk about AI-generated music, a lot of people have very different reactions to the idea of it, right? There are some on the maybe kind of the technophobe side of things where it's <laughs> like, you know, computers should never generate music. It's a very human experience, a human expression. I think some of that is going away a little bit just from what we've seen with images created, right? There was this idea that AI would never create beautiful images or do art. And we're starting to see 
AI and galleries. And again, this produces, I would say, a lot of emotions in humans in terms of, is that right? Is that not right? What are your personal feelings about AI created music? Do you think this is a positive thing, a negative thing? And how is it going to change the creation of music as a whole? Oh, yeah, that's the hardest question, probably. Because uh, it's, I mean, technology itself, as you know, it's never positive or negative. It's always the use cases with the technology. So any technology that's powerful could also be dangerous or extremely useful. And it's the same for generative music. Um, I am, although I'm uh, invested in the topic and I, I love to read about it and learn about it, I actually don't think you know, generating audio waveforms is the most important thing that's happening in music AI. I think there's much more interesting things that are more artist-centered. Uh, we actually help musicians build stuff um, instead of just generating it from, from text to final version. Uh, but uh, the general question, like, should we generate music with AI? In principle, obviously, there's no moral issue with doing it as an individual. But I do see some problems with the way it's being handled currently, because most of these AI generators that most companies are using are trained on um, copyright protected material, on intellectual property of musicians. And effectively, they are building generative models uh, off of their music, which is IP protected, and they train a direct competitor to the musicians uh, whose material they used. So that, that I think, is a moral problem. Uh, and I think it needs to be solved through fair remuneration and contracts between artists and uh, people training the AI models. And I think that's overall, you know, is it wrong or is it right? Obviously, we have to accept the changes, how they're coming in some way or form. So there's going to be AI-generated music. And it's more about shaping how it's going to happen. And I think if we include artists, if, we, if we're able to make them an offer also, how they could participate in this new future, um, it's going to be much more attractive for them to join in on it and, and kind of adapt to it. Yeah, so... Um, I, I do see the negative side of this as well. The way it's currently being handled, I think um, it's not, most of these models are not fair. Uh, but I'm optimistic this this will change to some extent in the future. Yes, I know this is something that gets brought up oftentimes in image generation as well. And I think yeah, yeah. at least in the US, we're starting to see a few lawsuits about it. Unfortunately, none of them have been won in favor of the artists <laughs> so far from, mm. from what I've been aware but, you know, I also question things, too, because if I am learning a new instrument, I typically do not start by composing my own pieces and having my own mm -hmm. expression, right? I typically start by imitating others and learning other great works, As, you know, in a similar process with music theory, you start to analyze and understand the components of how someone put a piece of music together. And we as humans are essentially taking in all those inputs into our own model, which is our brain, right? And making our own heuristics about how they may work. And then once we have a good understanding and different influences, we start to be able to generate our own, right? I, I see human brains working very similar to yeah. how our artificial brains work today. Yet at that same time, I do not pay any royalties to all my music influences, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah. also curious of like, you know, 
we as humans in some ways do that today. It's a common question when you hear an interview with an artist and they say, you know, who were your influences? And they go, oh, I love Stevie Ray mm -hmm. Vaughan. I love Lady Gaga. You know, they start to say all these names and then you can start to hear it in their music too, right? You can start to hear how those individuals influence. And so to me, it's quite fascinating from a standpoint of it's something we do as humans today and no one has a problem with. But mm -hmm. when we do it in models, now we feel that maybe someone has been cheated or stolen. And so yeah. Yeah. Wh why do you think there may be a difference between what we allow models to train on versus humans to train on? Right. That's a, that's a great question, uh, because I, I actually have the same the same opinion in principle. Uh and I've talked to musicians about it before. And typically when, when I'm speaking to musicians and they're um, voicing concerns about generative AI and that it's unfair that Gen AI learns from existing material and reproduces it kind of, this is usually exactly my response. Uh, aren't you doing the same? Uh, and I think we are. I, I truly think we are. You know, we, Of course, there's some genetics and so on involved in how we, we produce music. But a lot of it is also just the, the influences that we gather and we listen to music, we abstract patterns of how music should sound, and we use these tools that we learn, these abstract concepts uh, to construct new music. Same thing that optimally a deep learning model also learns. It's not memorizing if it's not overfitting. It should be, you know, abstracting patterns that it can use as tools to generate new music. Ideally, that's what happens. Uh, so if the model works well, it doesn't just memorize. And it's pretty similar to us. I think the, the ethical difference... Um, so I do think there's an emotional part of it, just people react to it uh, badly because it's an AI and that's part of it. But I do think there's an ethical argument to be made because it's happening on a large scale. You know, It's also comparable to data privacy, for example. Um, when I'm walking through the streets, I'm also picking up names and I'm picking up locations. I'm picking up um, car plates, for example, and all these personal information that if Google would publish them uh, or send them to me in an email about, about you, for example, uh, they'd be in trouble, um, especially in Europe. Uh, but like it's, and I think it's comparable to that because we as individuals, we also collect personal information and we do something with that. And we can also make use of these personal information. But as soon as a, as a big player does it on a large scale, it becomes a different magnitude because it has a different potential for um, danger uh, for the individuals, essentially. That's, so that's kind of that. And the other argument that I made, you know, these models are becoming... Um, not just disruptive, but truly um, dangerous competitors for an, for entire um, sub-professions of musicians. Uh, and doing that by training on their material without their approval, that seems uh, problematic. So I guess those are the, the two ethical arguments I, I could make. Yeah, I think those are really great points, especially on the large-scale instance, because also what we're seeing from that large-scale reproduction is that oftentimes they're taking that and reselling it, right? Even in the instance of ChatGPT, right? They took all of the blog posts and forms that were on the internet yeah. and now I've packaged it up and, you know, you have to pay the $20 subscription mm -hmm. if you want priority or fast, right? And so there is, I think, a sense of, yes, we do that as humans. I may read works of literature or look at pieces of art and be able to recreate that myself, but it's on a small scale, not taking what I've gathered and stolen from everyone mm -hmm. and then repackaging it up and, and selling it. So I do think that the scale factor is a really good point. 
in that regard. I'm curious where you, where do you see things headed in, in this space? Are you someone who thinks that soon we'll be listening to completely AI generated music and that will be almost a domain in and of itself and that will be hyper-personalized, right? I may, I have Spotify recommendations, which are really good and I can go in there and put in my mood and find a playlist that gives me my discovery, but maybe in the future it's so hyper-personalized mm. where I give it a prompt and it creates that music on demand. Is Is that where we're headed or is this going to be more of a tool that musicians use or individuals who have an idea for music can bring it to life through the assistance of AI? Where do you see yeah. the future of this field landing? Yeah. Oh, so that's, that's a gr great uh, and far reaching question, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's something I do think a lot about. Uh, I tend to take the stance that not all music will be AI generated and most of the music that people will be listening to will not be AI generated. Um, I think, you know, there's one argument is just, you know, the, the sheer amount of uh, music that's already available for everyone. There's hundreds of millions of tracks or even just on Spotify or similar. There's like more than 50 million tracks. Uh, there's probably more music that you like to a high degree and that you can listen to so there's more, much more music than you could even listen to even if you wanted to so it's more of a search and finding problem in some sense um so that's my first argument there's millions of people around the world hundreds of millions who are willing to produce great music for free just because they love it so that's a hard market to compete in uh for an ai generator a commercial one uh, everybody's doing it for free because they love it that's that's a hard one um, so that's the first point. I do think hyper-personalization is one of the niches where Gen AI really comes in. So for movie trailers, for example, really just upload your, your video and you'll get music that exactly has the right things happening at each point in time that's really representative of the video. So that's one use case. And I think that will be a serious use case. Um, and it's also going to be in stock music because it's maybe even cheaper. Um, so that's arguably... But I think when it comes to the everyday listening of people, uh, you you have to see that music is a deeply social thing. And listening to music is a social act um, in many, many, many cases. Uh, me, of course, I'm also a musician. But when I listen to my favorite music, I can visually see the musicians playing their instruments. And it's, it's, a, it's a social thing. As soon as you hear a voice, someone singing, it becomes a social interaction between you and the singer. Uh, and that's something you cannot just disconnect from the music. And I do think generative music will become as good as human-made music in many cases. I think that will be the case, although it's shocking. Um, I think it's happening in text and it will be happening in um, audio. But much the same way, I think that, you know, who's reading, like if people are still reading novels and not generating hyper-personalized novels with ChatGPT and reading them afterwards. That sounds crazy. And the same thing will be happening with music. Um, you want to have something done by other humans that you can admire, that you can build an emotional connection to. And as long as there's such gigantic amounts of music that are being produced every day for free for you to listen to, I don't actually see generative AI taking over. Um, in my life, certainly not. Um, if you show me two pieces of music, and you, uh, they might be of the same quality, but if I know that one of them is AI generated and one of them is human created, I will always prefer the human created one because with that one, I can build a social connection and with the other one, I can't. So that's that's my stance. Yes, I, I like that stance a lot. The other analogy I like to think of too is 
you know, we've seen this a little bit actually in fashion. Well, fashion is not created from AI. We, because of manufacturing and advancements in manufacturing, we've had this whole new category of fast fashion, right? With companies like Zara and H&M and Sheen. But yet we still see the luxury, what we call now the luxury brands where it's more handcrafted. It's gone up in price exorbitantly right and so i wonder if something around that regard is going to be true for music and for art where when you know it's crafted by a human in human hands the price of it will actually increase because to create it artificially will be so readily available so cheap almost free that to be a musician maybe is and to have live music is starts to become a luxury item as well which you know, I can yeah. see some positives for it in the fact of like, hopefully then artists can be paid more for live performances. But, you know, does that also make it where individuals, it's not equally distributed, right? Where only a select few yeah. are able to afford it from, you know, a 1% luxury item instance. So I don't know how it all turn out. I don't know if you've seen the, um, it's a Netflix anime show called Carol and Tuesday. It's probably my favorite no. anime show, but they, they explore mm -hmm. this whole idea. It's all about uh, two girls who, who are actually real musicians going up against AI generated music. Mm -hmm. So it's a very futuristic show. If, if anyone's interested wow. in exploring this concept more, I would highly check it out. It was created in 2019. So this is one of the reasons why I love it so much. It, Oh yeah. It's very forecasting of of the world we're living in or soon we'll be living in here in the next few years. Sure. And I, and I completely agree. And I also think, you know, when I look into the future, let's um, let's assume we're going to end up in this future where nobody needs to work anymore because AI is taking all of the jobs. You know that seemingly that horror scenario. But what are we going to be doing all day? We're probably going to be listening to music all day, right? So there's like there's always going to be one person that's going to play or a band that's going to play great music and everybody like hundreds or thousands of people could just sit there all day, listen to the music and be so happy about it. Uh, so I think like as soon as we have more automation, more machines, more things that are cheap, readily available, the relevance of um, musical interaction between humans can only rise. So I think uh, music music in of itself has a, has a, a human made music has a great future ahead, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, I'm very much a tech optimist. And so I do hope that when yeah. AI takes over our boring jobs, that we as humans have the time to actually think and to create and to experience the creation of others. I mean, for me, that is why we are here and what we enjoy most as humans. We saw this through what AI was able to do in chess. I think a lot of people thought that once an AI beat individuals in chess or alpha go mm -hmm. like humans would lose interest in the sport but that's actually the opposite in the u.s mm -hmm. here in middle school chess right now in 2023 2024 has been booming which is just so wow. exciting and so i think that's also a good reminder that if ai can do something better than us as humans we are going to lose our love for it like and that i think is so important because why we love it is the challenge and the process of what we learn, not necessarily the perfection, but it, I think is a beautiful part of being human. Absolutely. And 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 also, you know, especially with music and arts in general, um, I would argue it's impossible for AI to generate better music than humans. Uh, I think there's a threat, there's this cap uh, because in art, humans decide what's best. Uh, so it's like, if you're generating something that, 
that is of the same quality as what humans can generate objectively, that doesn't mean it's the most valuable to them, right? And humans will always evolve and they will always evolve their preferences and, and the cultures will evolve. And what, what great music means will always be kind of advancing with cultures shifting and cultures obviously are driven by humans again. So I think uh, it's we're never going to reach that point where we have to give up on music because AI is so much better at it. Uh, we're, we're always going to be the best musicians probably. I like that. So for individuals who are really interested in this space and want to get into AI generated music, can you give advice first from somebody coming from a data science background? How do you learn more of the music side of things? And then secondly, the opposite, right? So someone coming from a music background, what advice do you have to learn the other half of the skills of data science? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, I came from the music path, of course. So uh, maybe I'll start with the more challenging one. So what do you do when you're a data scientist and you want to get started with music? Uh, I would say, you know, if you're an experienced data scientist or you've, you've been doing data stuff for a while, why don't you just, you know, load an audio file into Python and just see what it looks like and, and start reading about digital signal processing. Uh, this discipline is called music information retrieval. You can learn a lot about how you can feed this audio file into uh, neural networks or traditional machine learning even. So I think the the way from, from a data scientist to building music tools is actually not the hardest part. Uh, it's learning about the algorithms, learning about the tech, being interested in it. But of course, if you, if you want to be uh, heavily invested in the field of music AI, it makes sense to pick up instruments, you know, to produce music and to analyze music. So I, I think, I mean, people voluntarily go into this field typically because they love music, right? They're not doing it for the, for the big money, uh, <laughs> typically. So it's like, it's something that people love doing. So I, I would say, you know, just start loading audio data into Python and reading about what you can do with the audio data and which algorithms uh, people use in that field. So that's kind of where I would come from. And when it comes to musicians going into uh, data science, I think that's kind of the more challenging part even. But what I would probably say is you're not going to get around doing some of the math and the data science fundamentals, because if you actually want to building uh, these technologies or truly understanding them, you have to do the fundamentals. So there's amazing online courses uh, on that, for example, there's amazing books on that. I think the critical part is at some point when you feel like you understand some of the theory, um, as a musician, just start reading some of the music AI papers. Uh, it's not going to take long until you realize, hey, this is this is this wasn't done well. Uh, that's this problem. There's this problem. Uh, here's some musical knowledge that's missing. Here, the authors did that wrong and that. So I think if you have that knowledge and you start reading the papers, you'll automatically realize what your place in in the field could be. Uh, yeah. I think that's some great advice. Two easy practical steps to come in from either angle, and I think there's, even if you don't even have either of those experiences, right? If this is a space that interests you, take up both sides of things, right? Either uploading the audio file or starting to learn an instrument. Um, at the end of the day, you know, do it because we need new perspectives in this space. And I think that's really how we're going to start to make that progress as music is quite subjective and we all have our own experience in how we interpret and create music. So lots of room and opportunity for individuals in this space. Yeah, totally. 
All right. Well, Max, this has been fascinating. I've learned so much from this conversation and I'm so grateful for all the work that you do in this space. I'm excited to see how it evolves here in the next couple of years. Anything else that you want to leave our audience with before we wrap up today? I couldn't think of anything, actually. I hope this was fascinating. And I hope especially that some people who, uh, you know, who are coming from either of the two backgrounds, so like from data science and interested in music or from music interested maybe in AI, that this was maybe a cool uh, conversation to get some inspiration uh, for and, and uh, you know, start on your music AI journey. Yes, and I'd highly encourage everybody go follow Max on LinkedIn. He posts the papers. So if you're looking for where do I even start and what papers do I read? He posts a lot of great papers and then also checked out his Medium articles and what he writes there. They're not AI generated, so nope, <laughs> they will be great. Nope. To, they'll be great <laughs> to dive into it and read. So again, thank you, Max, for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. It was very nice and being here. And a big thank you to our listeners. Remember to stay curious and keep learning. And we'll catch you next time on the Data Bites podcast. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bites podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.